Hi, welcome to Leadership with Randy. I'm Randy Powell. Today you're listening to Lessons on Leadership, our weekly conversation with inspiring people sharing some of the stories and lessons from their journey. He said, if you think you are where you ought to be, then that is where you will be comfortable. His suggestion to us was to work harder, study, move on, and advance. In other words, don't be satisfied being satisfied. Today, I'm excited to spend time with acclaimed author and business leader, Clifton Talbert, CEO of Fremount Corporation and the author of Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored, Eight Habits of the Heart, The Invitation, Little Cliff and the Porch People, Last Train North, and the co-author of the story of his inspiring entrepreneurial journey from pre-civil rights rural Mississippi and Who Owns the Ice House. Mr. Talbert's a renowned public speaker and also the president of Roots Java Coffee, an organization that helps provide hope to the farmers and families of the war-torn nation of Rwanda by importing coffee to the U.S. You can learn more about and order the coffee at RootsJava.com, and you can learn more about Mr. Talbert and his work at CliftonTalbert.com. Now let's go talk with Mr. Talbert. Well, we'll get started. I know more folks will jump in here, but but good morning. It's great to see everyone. And I'm excited about spending time with Clifton Talbert, who I've been talking to for a number of months now, going back to sometime in the spring when the county first brought up this book that uh, Network Kansas was using as a part of a curriculum. And, and anytime I hear a story about entrepreneurship, I'm intrigued and ordered the book and fell in love with it. And, and, reached out to Mr. Talbert and we've been talking on and off since and I've just fallen in love with everything about him and and his spirit and the the things he does to help people and so I think we're gonna have a great conversation and um, I'm looking forward to just learning more about you today and some of the things you've done. He's the author of a number of books so one that was very popular once upon a time when we were colored and I told him when I read that, you know, he was the first person that talked about a lot of the food I ate growing up. So he made me hungry, you know, so <laughs> he and I ate alike uh, growing up. So it was it was good stuff. But um, then the other book that's been very popular here in the county is Who Owns the Ice House, which is really um, a number of lessons that you learned along the way about entrepreneurship and community from your uncle. And that uh, that book was selected by all of the libraries in the county here and has been really uh, popular this year for people. So welcome, Clifton. It's good to have you. Um, Thanks, Randy. Tell us a little bit for uh, for folks that maybe haven't had a chance to read the book, just a little bit about growing up in uh, the time and era you did in Mississippi and, and making your way to the ice house. Well, first of all, thank all of you for getting up early or just giving time for me to be part of your day. Kind of reminds me of my great uncle Cleve because he was a man who understood time from a different perspective. And I'm glad that I caught wind of that when I did. Uh, Working at the Ice House was probably, I would call that a best job. It would be sort of like working at Chick-fil-A. Uh, it, 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 it was it was the best job because the jobs I had before that were working the fields. My family were domestic migrant cotton field workers, and that's the work that I grew up in. 
that my parents had grown up in as my grandparents. But Uncle Cleve was in the era of my grandparents. But at the same time, he had a small cotton farm himself. He didn't do well. And what, what I really caught a hold of was the cotton farm didn't work well, but that had nothing to do with his mindset about what he wanted to achieve. Achieving drove everything that he did. I'm going to make this work. So even though the cotton field did not work for him owning his own field, when the opportunity came that he could buy the ice house, he has squirreled away, he and his wife, enough money to buy the ice house. And what made this story so incredible, that in those days, legal segregation was the law of the land that everybody followed. And this was the only business in that small community that literally served everybody because there was only one ice house. So in the Mississippi Delta, in the 1950s and early 60s, uh, I, I don't quite understand it, but the sun was hotter than it is today. I mean, it is hot. So you can't do without ice. You have to have ice. And, and that became the world that I was introduced to, taking care of customers, but at the same time running a business and running a business with all of the, what I would call the social and cultural norms against you, but at the same time pushing through that and leaving a legacy that in the 21st century is literally helping people around the world to realize that, yes, I can. And for me, that is the lesson that Uncle Cleve left with me. Clifton, yes, you can. You know, there's a, there's a part of the book here that uh, gets to me every time when, when I go through it. Yeah, he had no single advantage to claim over any others in the community. He had no financial advantages. He didn't come from a wealthy family. He had no intellectual or academic advantage. He was a simple man of average intelligence. He had no political advantages. He had no government contracts. Uncle Cleve was an ordinary man whose only advantage was his mindset, a mindset that enabled him to choose a different life that allowed him to triumph over adversity as an entrepreneur. How important, I mean, uh, to me, that's incredibly important, but but what did you learn along the way about mindset and that winning mindset and how you uh, triumph over adversity as he did, you know, talk about that and what you learned from that. Well, one of the things, Randy, to keep in mind that the term mindset being used as, as much as it is today was not a term back then that was being used. Even entrepreneurialism was not a term that was used readily in those days. The word that was used in Glen Allen, Mississippi, that actually was the mirror of that and the same thing was a word that many of you have heard before. It was called gumption. How many of you have heard of gumption? Raise your hand. Okay, that was the word. For him, gumption and entrepreneurship, they were the same thing. Never heard of entrepreneurship until I was out of college, out of the military, into another life. The word that had driven me, the actions of that word was the identical same as they would be had we been talking about entrepreneurship. But the word was gumption. And Uncle Cleve had his actives for gumption. Gumption meant that you always got up before seven o'clock. I mean, that's how he defined gumption. 
Gumption meant that you got to work before you were supposed to be at work. That's another definition he had of gumption. Gumption was you were supposed to go to school, read your books, study. That's another definition of gumption. And he would always ask the question, well, boy, what you thinking? And I didn't realize how important that was because thinking is a very important part about sustained success. But if no one wants to know what you're thinking, you might eventually stop thinking and just start following the tracks, wherever those tracks might lead. But Uncle Cleveland always said, boy, what you're thinking? And when I worked with him at the ice house, at this 1947 pickup truck that carried the ice throughout the community, I was about 13 and he had taught me how to take that 300 pound block of ice, cut it into 150 pounds, then you cut it into 50 pounds, then 75, then 25, and he stand over me. But what I remember most in standing over me, he helped me to understand profit was not always automatic. And he would say, watch how you cut my ice because I don't want my profit on the floor. So in other words, I couldn't just chip away and watch ice fall. I had to make sure that when I finished that 300-pound block of ice, that 300 pounds in various parts were there. Nothing was left on the floor. I mean, it was just as smooth as if I had been a craftsman cutting ice. Because from him, I learned that his profit was based into the work you did. And how you did that could indicate how your return would look. And, and so I've carried that with me all my life is to make sure, like even with the coffee company, to make sure that I am doing the right thing at the right time and, and, and really following the rules of success. And that all of those things comprise the word gumption for him. He said, boy, if you got gumption, you can make it work. And today, you know, we call that the entrepreneurial mindset, the growth mindset that Carol Drake talks about at Stanford University. And that's what he had. He had a growth mindset because there's something called comfort and success are two different words. Uncle Cleve was never, ever comfortable. He was always pushing forward. And I think that's a very important part of the entrepreneurial mindset that it really puts a drive in you to accomplish what perhaps others said could not be accomplished. And I remember, now most of you probably know about Stairmaster. When Stairmaster came into being, I was right there on the ground floor. And I knew nothing about physiology. I knew nothing about exercise equipment. I mean, I just didn't know anything about it. But at the same time, I was smart enough to figure out that an opportunity was in that problem. So I began to do some research as to how I could help this company. And keep in mind, I don't know anything about physiology, don't know anything about heart rates, don't know anything about what could happen as a result of that piece of equipment becoming part of your life. But what I did that Uncle Cleve had taught, I recognized that oftentimes in a problem, there exists an opportunity and there was a problem. The, the guys who founded the company had several problems that had to be solved. And some of those I could solve. At that time I was in the banking industry. So I knew a little bit about financing, a little bit about money. And I was able to help them understand that if we get a contract here, 
but they didn't have the time to know how to get that contract. And all of a sudden, Uncle Cleve became alive in my head again. That's your opportunity, boy. So what I did, I created the, con the GSA contract for my company for Stairmaster. And so for the years before Stairmaster sold, everything that was sold on, on the GSA contract was part of my company bringing it into and bringing about the sustainability of that of the company. And the reason that's important is because Uncle Cleve didn't know anything about the ice house. He was a field worker. But the ice house required a different level of business than he had been accustomed to. But it did not mean he could not learn that other level of business, which he did, and which he did not only learn it, but he also taught me and others who worked for him. He created a system that didn't exist and did it well. And that to me gave me the idea. I don't know anything about Stairmaster, but that doesn't mean that my mind can't learn about Stairmaster and learn what I can do in order to be part of this growing company. So that's that to me is the, the ongoing lessons that I got from the Ice House in Glen Allen, Mississippi, some over some 50 years ago. How much of that is genetic and how much of that is influence? I mean, I had a conversation with somebody even again this week that the the most courageous thing you can go do is something new that that has you know fear of failure, all the obstacles, and and you say he didn't know anything about the business, but he still made that leap to go into this ice house business and start this entrepreneurial journey. How much of that was just innate in him, and how much was influences around him? What do you think caused that? That's a good question, but let me answer it this way: I have a son who's following in the footsteps of Uncle Cleve via his father. When my son graduated from college, he left home and went to Los Angeles, California. He was gonna be in the acting world. Everybody in Oklahoma think that you can become an actor, so go to LA. He followed them, didn't work out. But what I didn't know is that he had an entrepreneurial mindset and he was willing to start another business in LA that has become so profitable. I even asked my wife, who is this kid? Uh, because all of a sudden he's working 24 seven. I mean, he is working like there is no tomorrow. And I tease him, I kind of said, boy, you really are living out what Arthur Cleaver said. But I think influence that at an early age can shape how you respond to life as you move along. I don't know if I had a genetic disposition for entrepreneurship or my son, but we both were exposed to an entrepreneurial way that we gravitated toward. So you can take a person who has never been entrepreneurial or never had a business, you put that person alongside someone who does, and that person began to share their life in a very meaningful way, you began to look at that. You began to see that. You could even be working in an organization and there's someone that you become friends with and that person happened to have an entrepreneurial mindset or be doing those things that we would define as such. Then all of a sudden, you began to ask yourself questions. You know, I think I can do that. Maybe I should think about this.
So I think the idea of influence, from my perspective, have a great plays a much greater role than an innate ability. I think the innate ability that you may have inherited some type of precursory to this, but if the influence is not there, I'm not quite sure that you're going to jump on that board or jump on that train and head in that direction. I think influence really opens the door to the possibilities because there are some qualities we have to work and there are some qualities that we have, but I think the influence gives us the idea as to how to shape those qualities and how to become that other person rather than doing what everyone else has always done. If any of you have uh, questions, type in the chat and we'll unmute you. You know, that we probably, everyone on this call probably knows someone who has a dream, has an idea, has something they would be passionate about, but they're just afraid to make change. They they take the safe bet, stay in the safe spot and don't don't take that leap or don't find the courage to take that leap. What What have you learned from those influences in your life that you use today to help teach people and encourage them? Well, one of the things, Randy, and, I, and I, I'm not doing this because you're the host, because you don't have to do what you're doing. But what you are doing, you provided a platform for conversation to take place and for people to listen. And oftentimes when you can listen in a safe environment, you may not say anything for the first couple of times, but that becomes an educational process that you're providing. You're providing conversation for people to hear, listen to, dissect, and ask themselves some hard questions. You know, well, you, I, I got this idea, but I'm not sure it's going to work. But as you have these platforms and these forums, where you're giving people an idea to understand, yes, it may not work, but it also, it might work. Go back to my son. When American Express did a big story a couple of months ago, on athletic, we call it at leisure wear. And this is a company that my son owns in LA. He was called in by American Express as a subject matter expert. Now, this is a guy that when he worked for his dad, he would always do his job, but he got off at five o'clock. At 4.59, his hand was on the knob. He's leaving here. He's going to be out of here at five. He's not going to give me an extra five minutes. I can tell you that. He's going to stay his time, but he's not going to overtime. Take this, but me, I would be here two or three hours later. So he called me one day. He said, Dad, why do you stay? Why do you work so late? You don't have. I said, well, Marshall, I have to set the example of what I want others to see. Getting the job done is very, very important. Now, whether he was soaking that in, I thought it went right over his head. But now in business. Everything that he saw me do, this guy is actually doing it. I call him sometimes. He said, Dad, I can't talk to him in the field. Picking God, leave me alone. Bye. I mean, that's exactly what he says. He said, leave me alone. Bye. I'll call you when I get time. But what am I talking about? Fear is something that every human being will face. And when it comes to starting a business that you've never done before, the head talks and sometimes the head tells you, you know, X, Y, Z is doing this. You can't do this. But 
every business that has started started with a little fear but the fear did not become the thing that held them back they pushed the fear to the background and aligned themselves with someone who would give them a, a hand clap give them a pat on the back say you know i understand what you're doing and i know someone who's done something similar let me put the two of you guys together because that's what happened with Ice House. Uh, the program around Ice House with two people coming together that never knew each other. I had introduced Uncle Cleve to the world in my very first book. Every book that I write, his story is there, but not to the extent that it is in who owns the Ice House. So the idea of other people being involved, and this is what you've done, Randy, you've created that environment and the platform where conversations can safely take place and people can go on the chat and ask questions without their names being attached to it and find out what they need to know. Fear is a real part of the human experience. It ain't going nowhere. But getting beyond fear is also an equal part of the human experience as well. And we have just as many stories of those people who persevered, had great tenacity and went beyond fear as we do of people who failed because they didn't try. I know Mary's taking some notes of this, aren't you, Mary? <laughs> She'll have a page before you're done. Um, let's go over to Mike Kenny. I think he's got a few insights here on uh, mindset. No, sir. I appreciate it. Great stuff. You've got, you know, a really compelling story, but I'm a big Carol Dweck fan as well. Mindset, where she talks about fixed and growth mindset with the fixed mindset being really more focused on innate ability you know and they did studies in kids young children as you remember wherein you know those that felt a you know i've got natural iq any test or you know any opportunity for them to show how good they were they balked at because they didn't look at it as an opportunity to grow. It was more an opportunity to potentially fail and show themselves to not be as good as people thought they were and how paralyzing that is versus a growth mindset wherein you're like, yeah, Hey, I'll, I'll take the challenge. And if I fail, it's not, it's, you know, the, the mindset being win or learn. So, Hey, I'll either show I'm good or, you know, I'll, I'll achieve and accomplish, or if I don't and I fall short, you know, that's okay because I'll have learned a lot and then I'll come back even better. And that fear of failure, you're right. Even for successful people that have got a great track record of success, you know, I, I feel it too. Sometimes it's just like, man, I, I don't want to go and do something ham handedly and then look like an idiot, you know, if it falls flat. Um, but then you realize that if you don't put yourself out there, you deprive yourself of that opportunity. So well, nearly, well, Kenny, nearly every business that has become successful in our country and around the world, there have been those elements of failure around it. There have been conversations of failure, but failure is also a lesson as well. I mean, a failure needs to be taken apart, looked at, examined. So we can find out what did I do right? What did I do wrong? Now let's go back to the 15th century to Leonardo da Vinci. That guy had about 20 different expert jobs that he could do. And I've often done a study, often done work in conversations 
on what drove him to go from painting to sculpturing to engineering to scientists. I mean, you name it, he did it. He has been defined as the most inquisitive person to have ever lived. And that's the key word. The key word for sustained success is to understand that inquisitiveness is a human gift that can be maximized and utilized and can literally change things. People are afraid to ask questions. And so I'm suggesting to Randy, always create a forum where it's safe to ask the question that might sound dumb. Because oftentimes the dumb question that we call a whimsical, whimsical thought will be the question that provides an answer that can actually take you to the next level. Now, one of the things that everybody's talking about today that everyone should be thinking of an Amazon state of mind. Well, when Amazon started in that apartment selling books, they had no idea they were going to be where they are today. But it's the ability to look at our journey in a way to do an analysis. And that's why introspection is so important. To take an introspective journey, ask yourself the hard question, what am I doing? What am I doing right? What can I do better? Who do I need by my side? Who should I call on to ask the question? What should I do? Oftentimes, we don't take the time to take that introspective journey until it's too late. But introspection should be an asset that every entrepreneur should embrace as almost as money in the bank. Inquisitiveness. And the next one is to accelerate your imagination. Most people do not realize that imagination is just like a muscle. If you don't use it, it will atrophy or stay right where it is. But guess what happened in 1966 that changed the way the world looked at possibilities? What do you think happened in 1966? Randy, Tom, Tony, Mary, Mike, Isaac, Lydia, Joe, Janet, John, Mike. Something happened in 1966 that literally changed our view of the possibilities. Anybody have an idea? Sputnik. You're getting close. Sputnik. Not right, but you're getting close. Yuri Gagarin. You're getting even closer. Keep talking, Mike. <laughs> it happened in 1966, and it set the stage and provided a platform for creative and innovative thought that had not existed before. There's the a television series called Star Trek. Ah, okay. oh. <laughs> Star Trek literally was more than a Thursday show of Captain Kirk and Beam Me Up Scotty. It was more than that. Because behind the scenes, there were actual scientists involved in helping to design how that would work. And many of the things that they did on Star Trek as, a, as possibilities, it was their reality. Many of those things have become our reality today because all of a sudden we realize that we could actually go where no man or woman has gone before. That terminology 
became embedded in our thinking and our thinking changed our action and really drove our ability to go to get that crazy idea and put it on paper because they did it every Thursday night, a crazy idea that made no sense. Somebody's going to get the Klingon no matter what. Everything had to happen. When 1966, there was a shift in the thought pattern of humankind around the world of what is possible. So there are five things to keep in mind, guys. One is to embrace inquisitiveness. Don't be afraid to ask questions. The second one is to accelerate your imagination. When I was doing a job for Erickson out of Sweden, they had gotten a new president just a couple of years ago. And anytime you get a new president on a company, on a publicly held stock company, you're going to have to have a strategic plan, strategic plan to show what you're doing in order to justify the salary that you've requested. So in this process of doing this, they've got all of the North American suppliers together to let them understand that Ericsson had to jump from 4G to 5G quickly and to do some things they hadn't done before in order to increase their market share. So they had all, I mean, hundreds of suppliers from our country. I mean, and they were there shaking in their boots because this guy was demanding that if you can't get on the train with us, we will get someone else at the next station. We are not doing what we did yesterday in order to be who we should be tomorrow. So I was brought in, I worked for about two months trying to figure out exactly what Erickson was doing, exactly what they were going to accomplish and what these suppliers would have to do in order to accommodate the new structure within the organization in our country and around the world where Sweden, where Erickson had a footprint. So one of the things that really just knocked me over like a boat of lightning I'm sitting in my office, going through paperwork, looking at everything that I'm going to talk about. And I realized that every supplier had one thing that the other one had, and that was imagination. It was the imagination that had gotten them the job they had had for 20 years that they had done well. But oftentimes, if we've done something for several decades, we assume that is the total sum of our expertise. That's all we know. Don't change on me. Well, the new president changed. But what I had to help them remember that prior to their first job with Erickson, they had to use their imagination in order to come up with the product and the service that was served the 3G, the 4G market, and they did it. But what had happened, they had become so comfortable in what they had done that they had forgotten what they had to do in order to get to where they currently were. And that's when I came up with the two words. And I had, this place was packed with people. I said, this is what you can do is to accelerate your own imagination. They had left their imagination on the floor and they were looking at the problem that the company had rather than remembering what they had done 20 years ago that had placed them in the position they currently were. And that is what I say to each of you. 
you have the mind to ask questions, embrace inquisitiveness, accelerate your imagination. How do you accelerate your imagination? You hang around people who are thinking about tomorrow. You read books about tomorrow. You don't get caught up in just standing right where you are, know what's going on, and also be in a position to ask questions, look how to answer those questions, and work with people that you feel are future focused. Now, Tom Friedman has said that technology is moving so fast that we don't have time to adapt to it as we once did as quickly. But here's the answer to that. You're right. Big data, analytics, artificial intelligence, AI, all of that is moving like a Sputnik across the space. But we have the ability through lifelong learning, continuous education, and not being comfortable. St. Augustine says something that is absolutely critical. He said, if you think you are where you ought to be, then that is where you will be comfortable. His suggestion to us was to work harder, study, move on, and advance. In other words, don't be satisfied being satisfied. Get rid of that word out of your vocabulary because satisfied will give you a feeling of comfortability. And if you are comfortable, you're not really pushing to move to the next level. Because comfortable is you almost wrap your arms around me. I want to just kind of protect what I have and where I am. But when you remove yourself from a comfortable feeling and to realize that as long as you're breathing on this planet, that you can move fast. Uncle Cleve was, didn't have any of this terminology, knew nothing about this, but not only did he have the ice house, but in the winter, you don't buy as much ice. But what do you buy in the winter? You buy wood for the stoves you have. He had a wood company as well. He sold wood in the winter. What happens in the spring of the year when everything? He had a mechanic shop, high dollar cars that he fixed. I mean, this man had about three or four. And then when someone had a house to sell, he would buy those small homes and have rent houses. So he had about five streams of income platted and plotted in such a way that they kind of move with the weather conditions. Because in the summer, he was almost 100% ice. You gotta have it. But as that summer began, the summer sun began to set, all of a sudden he's getting ready for his contacts to have the wood company. And then he had the, the uh, rent houses. And then he also had the cars. So I'm not unlike Uncle Cleve. I write books, we make movies, I sell coffee. And my wife said, don't bring anything else in. We got enough right now. My wife has told me already, she said, um, we sell coffee to the Virgin Islands. And my wife is in charge of that part of it. But they have to pack it in such a way that if you're not careful, a woman, a female, your wife can break her fingernail. And that is not, guys don't know about, guys keep their fingernails off. But your wife or your daughters, they go to a very high paying place to get their fingernails done at a big cost. 
They have no desire to watch those fingernails fall. So my wife has already told me, she said, I'm packing this coffee for you. But if I break one fingernail, I'm out of here. <laughs> so just thought I'd throw that in for a freebie. I'm out of here. Let's go to uh, Janet. Thanks. I was really curious in a couple of the different chapters, you talked about your military service in the Air Force, and you talked about the special wing assignment that you had in DC. And I just wonder, particularly in the era and the time in which you would have served, you know, particular lessons that you had that were takeaways from that. And as we start to see more military people um, leave the service and start to look at doing businesses, um, some lessons and carryovers and, and advice that you would have for reaching out to them. Good. Uh, I'm one of the guys that enjoyed being in the military, but I took Uncle Cleve with me. And I didn't write about this as much in the book, but Uncle Cleve's uh, son was in the military. And when I joined the Air Force, I mean, he was as, as if he had joined himself. And when you come home, you had to walk to his house with your uniform on. Uh, and all the lessons that he had taught me on, you know, you have bosses in the, in the military. You, you got someone is over you. And how you respond in that environment with your commander of those who are in command over you. Uncle Cleve always said he, he became the essence of a commander for me. And how I reacted with my great uncle is how I reacted with all of my bosses throughout the military. And when I got assigned to the 89th Presidential Wing in Washington, D.C., when most of my friends were going to Vietnam because it was during the ending years of the war, had not been over, but they were almost over at that time, I carried with me those same entrepreneurial habits, getting the job done, asking questions. And nothing was too hard to do because we worked with the very first computers. The, com the computer was so big, it was literally in a 12 by 14 room by itself. And everyone who worked with the computers, you, you almost freeze to go in there, like 40 or 35 degrees. And everyone had on white jackets as if they were surgeons. And we had to learn Fortran and Cobalt languages. And I said, well, I, I can't do this. But Uncle Cleve said you can't. And that to me is the part of the mindset of gumption and entrepreneurial mindset that yes, you will face opportunities that you have no knowledge about. You don't quite know what to do or how to do it. But it doesn't mean that your mind cannot be shaped to accommodate it, learn it and make it happen. And that's how I applied all of that to the military. So when I came out of the military, what I had learned there and what I learned from Uncle Cleve, those things became jointed, giving me an opportunity to go into business for myself, realizing what I needed to do on a consistent basis in order to remain successful. So the military, I learned from the military and I brought the ice house to the military. Let's go to Kirsten. Well, thank you so much, first of all, uh, for joining us. I think my question has morphed a little as you've talked, which is not surprising. Um, you talked about a little bit about 
Marshall and how, you know, you, you talked, you, you shared and you didn't know if it was sinking in. Um, did you ever have a conversation with uncle Cleve about what he saw in you? What made, you know, cause maybe there were a lot of Clifton's that he tried to bring up and it just didn't sink in, but for whatever reason it sunk in with you. I don't know. Maybe you were the only one. Um, but did you ever have that conversation with him? You know, did he know that wherever you went, you took him with you as Marshall no, I, takes you with him? Right. No, I did not have that conversation. But this is what happened, which is interesting. This is the first time that question has been asked of me. But there's an interesting answer. Whenever I come home to visit, when Uncle Cleve was still alive, I would go and sit literally at his feet and just listen at him talk. And he would ask me, he said, how's your job doing? What are you doing? Things like that. And we never really talked about my work at the ice house because when I worked at the ice house, he literally became a mentor without the term being used because driving with him in that 47, 1947 pickup truck, he would talk to me about life, what to steer clear of, also about saving in order to have, which I followed that. He always asked that question, you're saving your money now. Don't waste your money. And, and me, but he would be very consistent. He only had about four or five lines that he would say, but you heard those four or five lines for almost 50 years of your life. I mean, he didn't, they just didn't change. It was the same thing. You know, you, you go to work on time, you know, you, you're putting in a full day. I mean, those are the questions he would always ask and he never, he never changed. And I realized now looking back, assessing those conversations, it left me with the idea that, well, wait a minute, Uncle Cleve was literally giving me reason to link on and stay linked to what I had learned in Glen Allen without telling me to do that. And so when you go back to Marshall Thurston and I find out from my son in his comp two companies that he has in LA that he has about five small companies that work for him in his design company that does all of the, the various aspects of it. But the one thing that that amazes me because when my son was in high school and in college, he did the least amount of stuff he could do. He made a 4.0 the first semester in college and he promised me and his mother that he would never make 4.0 again and he didn't. I mean, he, he, I mean, I knew the guy was smart, but it scared him to death what would be required of him to stay on that track. But once he got out of college and got out in the workforce, you would think that he worked along Uncle Cleve at the ice house because everything that we had taught him, everything that he had seen, and I think it was more of what he caught than what was taught, to be honest with you. And even that's how he runs his company today. He'll call me and say, Dad, what do you think about this? And I said, well, I, I would do it a little differently, but I'm finding now that more often than not that he's probably – more committed to success and his making a success than I could be for him. 
It has now become his own idea of this is what I have to do in order to be there. I mean, he's a man now. And uh, he designed Athleisure Wear in Style Magazine, just did a story. Forbes Magazine just finished an interview with him. He didn't read books. I mean, I love I put books in the bathroom everywhere for him to pick up and read. While he was at home, Janet, Kirsten, Tom, Mike, Marshall never picked up one single book. He stepped over them, stepped around them, never picked them up. But they were always there. You always see me reading. Now he reads three entrepreneurial books a month. He's taking French and Italian. I said, why are you taking Italian, son? He's because I'm going to remove Ralph Laurent from his position, and I want to be able to tell him in Italian. And he's absolutely serious. I mean, I don't know who he, who he is anymore. But what I am saying is that the culture that surrounds us has a lot to do with how we turn out and how we shape our own lives. And you creating in this platform, a culture in this platform can be of such that people can bring those questions that they can't ask anybody else and get answers. And that's very, very important. Mary had to take a call, so I'm going to jump over her question and go to Lydia, and then we'll uh, come back in a minute. Hi, Clifton. Thank you so much. What an inspirational story. My question is, uh, or maybe it's a comment, that what your uncle did really well was to inspire possibility and be a great uh, cheerleader, and his vision for you was bigger than the vision for yourself when you were a young young man. You talked about imagination and I agree. And that requires a culture and a leadership perspective of really inviting imagination because not every idea is gonna be fantastic. And right. so if your litmus test is, well, bring your great ideas to me, but not your bad ideas, people won't be able to really, you know, even uh, brainstorm in a way that could be beneficial so there's, it's a culture of openness and interest and curiosity and imagination that you're talking about. I wish I had taken everything you said, Lydia, and put my name under it, because you have defined it very well, very succinct. And being the Southerner that I am, they always tease when I was teaching at Harvard, I was over 15 minutes. And um, the, the dean of the Graduate School of Education came running down the hall. Mr. Talbot, you have to let people out. They got to go to the next class. He said, you can't hold class this long. I said, well, we were telling a story. He said, I can't help that. I said, well, don't blame me. We didn't invent the clock in Mississippi. We only invented the front porch, and that's the problem. We talked too long. But Lydia, you have said this very, very well. Uh, Uncle Cleve literally set me up for success without me even knowing it. Because I can look back very closely at everything that he said, everything that he required of me. He would always ask me about school. Now, keep in mind, he probably had a third grade education. But for him, 
there was no such thing as a B or C or D or an F. He said, boy, just bring all the A's home you can get. And that's all he said. He's, I mean, and he's smoking his pipe because he didn't know how to go any further than that, but he realized the value of an A as compared to something else. So I got getting through high school as number one in my class was a tribute to Uncle Cleve. I had to travel a hundred miles round trip to school every day for four years. Mm. I never missed a day out of school in four years. Uncle Cleve always said, stay in school, stay in school. I had no choice. So one day my son was talking to a bunch of his friends and they were talking about college and uh, we were waiting to hear Marshall so we could feel proud as parents. He said not one word. And then when everybody left, I said, Marshall, you didn't talk about college at all, son. He said, Dad, there's nothing for me to say. I live with you all. I'm going to college if you guys have to take me on a stretcher, okay? <laughs> but again, the culture that you referred to, Lydia, is very, very important. It's not about your bright idea. It's about your idea. Mm -hmm. It's not about your great imagination. It's about your imagination. I always tell businesses when we talk to individual businesses to create a time once a month or once every two months called a what if moment where you have people come in, have the business cards and tear the business cards up because so many people are held captive by their, their title that they can't allow their mind to randomly run because their title has them sort of cloistered in a certain place in time. But I say, create a what if time and give people an opportunity to say, well, what if you did this? I do a lot of work with the oil and gas companies here in Oklahoma, with especially the pipelines. And I always tell them, I say, on the 30th floor is where the president lives. I say, at the wellhead is where your answers are. If you're not getting anything out of the ground, it doesn't matter what's on the 30th floor. I say, you need to have those people involved in the what if scenario as you do what I call your strategic thinkers, because they, everyone in an office, in a business, has to be given the opportunity to become a strategic partner, which means you want everybody thinking strategically. Don't just get people to be robots. And that's why Amazon has done so well during COVID. And everybody said you should have an Amazon state of mind. They saw the world cratering. And rather than cratering with the world, you hear no problems about, about Amazon. Everybody else is having problems. Amazon got whatever you last ordered is at your house right now. They did some things early on that had nothing to do with what they were doing prior to. And that's what we have to think in terms of today. And that's why the entrepreneurial mindset is so important because it is not stuck in time. The entrepreneurial mindset is not stuck in time. It is a progression of time that continues to move if we allow it to do so. You know, you're, you're mentioning the Amazon. I know Mary's got a question I want to make sure we get, but she had to take a customer's call. And so she may not get back with us here, but I want to ask it uh, about that Amazon mindset and developing that. How much do you 
shut out the voice of the naysayers or how much do you listen to them and learn? What's that balance of, of that to develop that Amazon mindset? I think it's a combination of both. You don't shut down the naysayers because oftentimes, we're like in the coffee business here, if someone called me and said, Mr. Tauber, we didn't get this coffee on time, I don't go arguing, asking, I said, I assume the customer is always right. You have to make that assumption. And even though the customer may not be exactly right, I'm not going to spend time trying to argue that point. I spend time, how can we take care of you? How can we get this done? How can we make it happen for you? And to me, a naysayer is an opportunity to find a weak spot in the armor. Not something that takes you out of the game. But it gives you the if even if it's not exactly true, but it gives you the idea that it could become true at some point in time. So let's look at this from that perspective and let's look to see what we need to do in order to accommodate that so that we don't have a bigger issue coming on. Don't don't leave naysayers outside of the outside of the door. We have to hear what they have to say. John mentions here that Google lets people spend 20% of their time on ideas. Have you seen other examples of that, of people creating that culture of, of innovation? Yeah, uh, Microsoft. Uh, I remember going up to Seattle. They had designed their whole building where you could come together at the end of a corridor. They call it the think tank room. And they're not room, they're just open space <clears throat> with chairs and tables, et cetera, where you join there to talk about what's going on, what's the new ideas. I mean, just literally bouncing things off the wall, just bouncing, 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 because every good idea comes from a person. And many of those ideas can come from the people we know, those that are sitting around us, and those that we haven't met before. And so, yes, that that's... Uh, that to me, I, I, I know that's what Microsoft does. And I know there are smaller companies who are now beginning to realize that because at one time we segmented the employee base. We assumed that if you were on the, on the 10th floor making that the executive floor, that's where all the bright ideas were. That's not true. The ideas are at the dock, the loading dock. The idea is with the guy who drives the truck. These are the people that interface with your customers. These are the people that know things that you don't know. But at the same time, on the executive floor, you know things that they don't know. So we got all of these pieces of the puzzle that are germane to creating a good picture of something, but we're not bringing them together as quickly and as thoughtfully as we should. And in my mind, that's what we need to do is to give every employee an opportunity to become a strategic thinker and a strategic partner. Yeah, you mentioned the coffee company, and, and there's something interesting about that to me. You know, I think that there's a, a certain amount of entrepreneurship that's baked in our American way of life that you can go do anything you want, you can go be anything you want. But I've been in a lot of parts of the world, and you have too, where that's not the common culture. So you're in Rwanda teaching entrepreneurship to folks that have really just been 
in civil war and crisis for much of their lives. What's the challenge of that, of teaching the coffee business to folks that don't know the American way? Well, it's, it's a couple of, I'll, I'll give you a point on one. They're teaching me the coffee business. And, uh, and I am learning that from them uh, and, and some of the other people that we're involved with. But for those people that I actually meet from Rwanda, those young, that the generation who survived the genocide, the generation who lived to go to school, go to college, et cetera. Uh, they, I would say that terminology might be different, but independence is a way of thought there, seemingly from my perspective. When I work with Rwandan students here in the United States, uh, that after they get ready to get out of college, and they have to get another assignment for about a year working in their field in order to get their visas or whatever those cards are extended for another couple of years. And I remember just talking the other day with the guy and I went home, I was telling my wife, he's from Rwanda. And I said, Barbara, I said, this guy's already successful. I said, it has never occurred to him that he couldn't be. And that is one of the things that I have found by most of the African students that I've run into that their concept of life is a lot different, even though they may look like me from the exterior, but interior, they have a mindset that is already, for the most part, entrepreneurial. Um, close out with one more thought here and, and seeing Mike Meyer post, you know, uh, brings me back around to that. How much in these organizations you've been a part of, starting from the Ice House and through the banks and all of these other uh, places you've been, how much does purpose weave into building this culture? Thanks for throwing that one on me, Randy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, purpose, you know, what drives your purpose? What drives you to do what you do? Uh, I think at the end of the day, I'm a firm believer in that every individual has the ability to build community. And for me, that should be the driving purpose. Because if community exists in your workplace, you're going to be getting 100% of effort extended for what you need to have done. If community exists in your house, it's going to be a place where people are welcome, affirmed, and included, and they're excited to be your son, your daughter, husband, or wife. It's a good place to be. And if community exists within the places where all of our business are collected, then all of you are excited about the success of each other. What is not a competitive deal, competitive from the standpoint that, yes, I want to do the best that I can, but not to the point that I don't want someone else to succeed. I think purpose should be driven by the desire to see good community. Because when good community exists, there are three things that evolves out of that. You respect people, you affirm people, you include people. And those are the three things that individuals need in order to maximize their potential while on the planet. So for me, community should be the purpose-driven way of looking at life, build community. Wow, it's hard to not get excited about all the things you've talked about today. But thank you guys. Uh, I Let me just read one thing before I go, Randy, would that be okay? 
Sure. Love to. If you want to maximize your innate potential, whoever owns, whoever and wherever you are, who owns the Ice House? Eight life lessons from an unlikely entrepreneur is for you. <clears throat> this book is about the entrepreneurial mindset, a way of thinking and being. And the key word is the way of thinking and being. There are oftentimes people who think, but they have not translated the thinking into action. The way of thinking and being that is life changing. When those two things come together, it's life changing, thinking and being. And Randy, you may not realize this, but in the 15th century, Leonardo da Vinci did exactly what you're doing today. He didn't have Zoom to make it happen that way, but his house was turned into a Zoom place where people from all walks of life would come and they would sit and they would ask questions and there was no wrong question and there was no wrong answer. And they literally came from every walk of life. And Leonardo da Vinci would facilitate exactly as you are today. Some 500 years later, you are doing what he did 500 years ago, getting people to express themselves, looking for answers when questions were being asked, knowing how to make things happen and give people the mindset not to be afraid to do what you need to do in order to accomplish what you need to accomplish. And that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. And that is absolutely amazing that Steve Jobs says that Leonardo da Vinci was his mentor. Only reason he could say that because there were about 7,000 sheets of paper left that Leonardo da Vinci took notes. He didn't have the best thing of a laptop or a notebook or a iPhone. He had pencil and paper. Yet thousands of pages were left for posterity. 7,000 are still in existence, of which Steve Jobs had an opportunity to avail himself to. So to me, I understand why the Mona Lisa was not an accident, and I understand why the iPhone became reality. Because both men subscribed to the same five things, inquisitiveness, imagination, introspection, mindset, and branding their culture with respect, affirmation, and inclusion. Even though they were 500 years apart, they were both able to do something that no one else had ever done. The Mona Lisa still draws the crowd today that it did when this small painting became part of the art world. So, so thank you guys. Randy, thanks for tracking me down. I'm grateful for you spending time with us today. It was incredible and it was inspiring. And I can see why you continue to make a difference with everyone you come in contact with. Well, thank you guys. I'm going to go back and as I'm pleased said, get a drink of water, go to the bathroom and go back to work. I mean, he, right. his life was very simple. Not just do what you have to do and get back to work. Well, have an awesome so you guys weekend. Take care. I'm going to, I, yeah. Sell some coffee and have an awesome weekend. Uh, that's my plan. Take care, guys. Bye.